so we're starting 2 Corinthians tonight. Uh, I want to start by just reviewing this, the understanding we have of the Second Corinthian or of the Corinthian letters. Um, it is thought that 2 Corinthians, what we know of as 2 Corinthians, it's thought that that's actually the third and fourth letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. So it, most scholars think chapters 1 through 9 was one separate letter, and then chapters 10 through 13 was a separate, a different letter, a fourth letter. Um, 1 Corinthians, the letter we know as 1 Corinthians, was actually the second letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Because 1 Corinthians in chapter 5 references the first letter that Paul wrote to Corinth, but we don't have a copy of that. Now, it is also possible that uh, 2 Corinthians is just one letter, and it's just the third letter he wrote. But the contrast between what's going on in the first nine chapters and then the last four chapters is so significant that most scholars just think that uh, there was a little bit of a time gap between those those two texts. Anyway, uh, that kind of stuff is interesting to me. It's sort of historical stuff. Um, but 2 Corinthians is, is written about a year after what we know of as 1 Corinthians. So it's 54 to 55 AD is when 2 Corinthians is written. And just to give you some, some scope, uh, the first letter that Paul writes is thought to be either Galatians or 1 Thessalonians sometime around 45 or 46 AD. So these Corinthian letters are written eight to 10 years later. And Romans, which is kind of his Magna Carta, is written in the year 57 or 58. So he writes Romans after the Corinthian letters. And then all of his pastoral letters, so the letters to uh, um, uh, Ephesians, so letters to Ephesus, Colossae, uh, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon are all written in the 60s, in the early 60s, while he's in prison. So let's review the city of Corinth, which is interesting also. 50 AD, so about four and a half years before he writes 2 Corinthians, is when Paul first gets to Corinth to help start the church there. So he helped plant the church there. And by this time, Corinth, the city of Corinth, had been a Roman colony for about 100 years. So it was formerly a Greek city until it was destroyed in 146 BC by the Romans who were in the process of taking over the world. Now, just because it's a Roman colony now doesn't mean that there are nothing but Latin people there or Roman people. It's still Greek people who live in Corinth. It's just that now they're part of the Roman Empire. Um, so after 146 BC, when, when Rome sacked Corinth, it remained in ruins for about 100 years, and then they began to rebuild it. And it's located on an isthmus, which is a narrow strip of land between the Adriatic Sea and the Aegean Sea, which is in the northern Mediterranean. And so since it's on an isthmus, which on either side are these fairly major bodies of water, uh, Corinth was a perfect place for uh, a city of commerce and industry uh, to be built. And with that location, there's no way it would remain in ruins forever. And so by 100 years later, after they started rebuilding it in 50 AD, when Paul arrived in Corinth, Corinth was actually bigger than Athens. And Athens, of course, is the jewel of ancient Greece, but Corinth was bigger. And Paul was actually coming from Athens when he arrived in Corinth in 50 AD. So uh, during the 50s, 
Corinth had, it's hard to nail down the population of Corinth. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind uh, Rome and um, not Damascus. Anyway, I'll think of it. But anyway, behind Rome and another city. And um, Corinth at that time had 200,000 what, what you would call freedmen. So men who were not slaves or bond servants and just men. So 200,000 men. So this didn't count the bond servants, the slaves, the women, the children. So maybe Corinth was 750,000 people, which by ancient standards, that's a huge, huge city, big, big city. And as far as their commerce and culture goes, it was a major business city. It was very sophisticated in Corinth, but not as sophisticated in, as Athens, and certainly not with the flair and the highbrow of Athens either. But the Corinthian citizens themselves were quite arrogant about how wise they thought they were. So they, they loved to compare themselves to Athens anyway. Uh, Corinth was quite wealthy, but um, also had major sections in the city where there were poor and oppressed people living. And like, like in Rome, many gods in Corinth were worshipped, so they had a pantheon. So you would, you would worship and sacrifice to the god of the harvest, the god of weather, the god of sex, the god of love, the god of breakfast cereals, whatever it is that you're, you're trying to worship and, and, and manipulate. And they, would, they had built all of these temples to the gods where you would go in and you would offer sacrifices for love or for harvest or for weather or for cur curses. You could go in and ac uh, uh, offer a sacrifice to a god in order to try to place a curse on somebody like your enemy. So you could do that too. I don't know if the curses ever worked, but you could certainly go in there and, and try that. But, of course, and we covered this in 1 Corinthians. It still just boggles my mind. But in these temples, one of the ways you could offer a sacrifice, and I put it in air quotes, one of the ways you could offer a sacrifice was to pay one of the many temple prostitutes to have sex with you, and that was an act of worship and sacrifice. Yeah, it's just weird. And there were male and female prostitutes, so whatever your deal was. So Corinth was a city loaded with sin, they didn't have the market cornered on sin. No, no city has it cornered. But it was, in the ancient days, it was known as Sin City. So I know Vegas claims, that's their claim to Las Vegas, that's their claim to fame, but that, you know, they're just a mini Corinth at this point. But it's interesting also that in their culture and in their contextual setting, if you called somebody a Corinthian, it was an insult because it meant what it meant is that you were somebody that had no integrity. So it's just some weird, weird stuff, you know. And of course, the most notable and famous goddess of Corinth. Anyone want to take a guess at who that was? Anybody? Aphrodite, goddess, goddess of sex. That's right. Uh, and so it's important to consider Corinth was a tough place to plant a church. Really tough place to plant a church. It, it, it's not like a suburb outside of Nashville or Indianapolis, you know, where you, everybody's planting churches all the time. You know, it's a tough place to do it. Um, these would be hardened, dark, cynical, and desperately sinful people who were set in their cruel and wicked ways. And yet God ended up moving in this city. God moved in this city. So the gospel was much needed there. And so Paul writes... 
1 Corinthians for several reasons. The one, the book that we just finished studying, he wrote it in order to respond to the Corinthian church's response to his first letter, a letter that we know exists, but we don't have a copy of. It's referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So, like I said, which really means 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians, but I know that's confusing. It was written second to answer questions that the church was asking in response to Paul's first letter, which we don't have. Uh, Third, it was written to correct a lot of false teaching, a lot of idolatry, and a lot of ungodly church methodologies. And then fourth, it was written to mention the collection that Paul was putting together for the church in Jerusalem, which we talked about last week in chapter 16. But he also wrote to the Corinthians originally to include the corrections of serious sin that was going on in the church, which again is described in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, sin that was so bad that even pagans were aghast at this. He said even pagans wouldn't do what you're doing, what you're allowing to have happen in your church, and to tell them what needed to be done about it. And as we get into 2 Corinthians in subsequent weeks, we'll see that Paul is delighted to see that they did in fact correct this problem that was going on, but they had overcorrected. And so now Paul is saying, okay, you also have to forgive, <laughs> you know. So you, you've done the rebuke, that's good, but now you've got to restore uh, these sinners as well. Uh, Paul is also under the impression that his first letter was well received, at least for the first nine chapters of this letter that we're going to look at. So, here we go. Um, some people do think that as he was writing this letter at the end of chapter 9, he simply got interrupted with the news that the Corinthians were really unhappy with him. And so, maybe it is just one letter, we're not sure. But what Paul gets unhappy with in the last five chapters, so no, four chapters, 10 through 13, what Paul gets unhappy with, what he's angry about, is that the Corinthians are making false accusations against him. So one of the improvements in, in uh, you know, the Christian church over the years is in the 21st century, nobody makes false accusations in the, in the church anymore, which is really progress. I'm kidding, okay? So... Anyway, uh, let's go ahead and dive in. Look at verses 1 and 2. Typical greeting, pretty typical greeting. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Achaia is the region, Corinth is the city. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, this is a standard Pauline greeting. It's a standard first century Greco-Roman letter writing opening. It immediately identifies the author of the letter and the recipients of the letter. We don't do very much of this today, though there are exceptions. I just wrote a letter today where uh, the very first sentence of the letter, it was Dear So-and-So, and it said, my name is Frank Switzer, and I am the lead pastor at Redemption Arcadia. But ordinarily, we don't, we don't write letters as formally as that uh, anymore. Uh, but there is some good information. For instance, in verse 1, Paul reminds this church that he is an apostle. He is an apostle. So he has authority to teach and instruct them and to rebuke and correct them. 
And, and notice that he says, and I am an apostle by the will of God. He says, this wasn't my idea. So don't argue. If, you, if you're unhappy about me being an apostle, your argument's with God, not with me. Okay? So if you want, you can turn. To, I want to just read that story in Acts chapter 9. Because I think it's really helpful background information. So the book of Acts is everything that happens after the uh, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It's the beginning of the new church in Jerusalem and then to other places. It it describes Paul's three missionary journeys, but um, in great detail. But uh, Paul originally was not a Christian. In fact, Paul was present when they martyred Stephen for preaching the gospel. That's in uh, Acts chapter 7. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a professional Jewish religious person who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah and felt that anybody who taught that or believed that was a heretic and was worthy of prosecution, prison, and even execution. And it's thought that Paul probably had some Christians executed at some time. And so what Paul ends up doing in Acts chapter chapter 9 is he goes to the Sanhedrin, the chief council, and he says, look, I know there's some Christians up in Antioch, or, or in Damascus, Antioch. Antioch's the city that's the second largest city in the Roman Empire. And it's up near, kind of north of um, Damascus. But he says, I know there's some Christians up in Damascus, about 100 miles north of Jerusalem, and, and I want you to give me the legal papers to be able to go up there and snatch those Christians and bring them back to be cross- prosecuted, bring them back to Jerusalem, to be prosecuted and maybe even executed for their heresy of believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. So, starting in Acts chapter 9, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, against the Christians, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, so very early on, the, the Christian church was known as the way, and eventually uh, they were called Christians or little Christs, okay? If, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, so he did not discriminate, he might bring them bound in shackles, in chains to Jerusalem. And the implication is for prosecution of heresy. Now, as he went on his way to Damascus, he, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, Paul, Saul, Saul, by the way, his name, his Jewish name is Saul. He doesn't become Paul until Acts chapter 13. So Saul is Paul. Now, as, as Saul was on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven shone all around him. And falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? So right out of the gate, Saul recognizes that he's talking to God. This isn't. This isn't just some person. He recognizes he's talking to God. He's talking to Jesus. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And notice Jesus says, you're not persecuting the church. You're per- by persecuting the church, you're persecuting me. By persecuting my followers, you're persecuting me. Why are you doing this to me? So this is the resurrected Jesus here. He said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So he was also blinded by this. Okay? 
So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to Ananias in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, different Judas than in the Gospels. <laughs> Judas was a very common name in the first century. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered. Now listen to Saul's reputation, Paul's early reputation. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. I don't want to go near this guy. He's going to arrest me and maybe kill me. Okay, I don't want to go near him. Okay, But Ananias answered... Um, uh, but the Lord said to him, I want you to go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So one of the things I, I find interesting also about this story is Saul, as a Jew, uh, as a professional religious person and a Pharisee, one of the most well-known Pharisees of his day, he thought he was doing God's work by going to persecute Christians. He didn't think he was doing anything wrong or wicked or evil. He thought he was right in the center of God's will doing God's work by doing this. And so he had to have this rather radical conversion experience where the resurrected Jesus appears to him, which, by the way, is one of the qualifications for being an apostle. You have to have seen and been with the actual Jesus. And so that's why he's able to become an apostle, even though he wasn't part of uh, Jesus' uh, rabbi yoke during the Gospels. But that's what qualifies him, to be an apostle. So now he says, I've been called as an apostle. So he's like the 14th apostle, the last one of the first century. There are no more. There's the gift of, of being an apostle, which means you're just an ambassador for Christ. But these are different kind of apostles that we're talking about in the New Testament. And then the other thing that I find interesting is after he's converted and he has his experience with Jesus, in that second paragraph I read where, where, he's talking, where uh, the Lord is talking to Ananias, he gives Ananias Saul or Paul's um, job description. And it's two bullet points. Okay, here are the bullet points. You have to go and tell your enemies the gospel. You have to go to people you don't like. You're a Jew and you're going to have to go to Gentiles. You can't stand Gentiles. Jews think Gentiles are unclean, second-class citizens. You're going to be sent to the Gentiles to tell them the good news about the gospel. So you get to go to your enemies. And bullet point number two, you're going to suffer for it. <laughs> That's going to be your ministry. So I, I, some of you probably heard me say this before, but just some Sunday morning, I want to get a clipboard and say, I want to, 
I want to start a ministry where you, have to, you can only talk to your enemies about Jesus and you're going to suffer for it. Who's signing up? <laughs> you know? That's what Saul ends up, Paul, ends up signing up for. So he's reminding them, he's reminding the Corinthians, I am an apostle against my own will. If it were my idea, I would never be an apostle. I would never even be a Christ follower. This was all done against my will. This was God's will, God's idea. So don't blame me. You're, if you don't like me, your quarrel is with God. So have at it. And so he's writing them. And, and even though there's, and then here's the other thing about the way he greets them. He calls them saints in Corinth. So remember, there's a ton of sin going on in the church in Corinth, not just in Corinth at large, but in the church at Corinth with the Christians. There's a ton of sin going on there. And there are many other issues and challenges at the church in, in Corinth. But Paul reminds them, you're in Christ, so you're still saints. We talked about this a number of weeks ago, um, uh, this idea of pro-social shame, about how shame has gotten a very terrible reputation and rap in our current culture. All shame is bad. And psychiatrists are writing and saying, that's not necessarily true. There is a type of shame that's called pro-social shame that is actually very helpful and constructive. It's the fact that when you do something horrible and awful, wicked and wrong, you should feel some measure of shame, but the way your community responds to you should be in a pro-social way. In other words, they don't respond by going, please get out of here, we, don't, we can't abide with you anymore. But rather, they come and they say, look, you sinned and that's wrong and you shouldn't do that again, but you're still a part of our community. And we love you and we want to restore you. And that's what Paul's doing here. All throughout 1 Corinthians, he's calling out their sin over and over and over and over and over again. But as he's doing it, he keeps reminding them, you're in Christ, you're saints, you are uh, part of the kingdom. So he, he's practicing before psychiatrists ever came up with this term. Paul is practicing in the first century pro-social shame. And it, and it is constructive. Okay? And also, even though Paul doesn't really get along with the Corinthian church the way he does with, say, Philippi or Ephesus, he loves the church at Ephesus. He loves the church at Philippi. You just see that in the book of Acts when it describes how he goes there. And you can see it in his letters to those. He just loves these churches. Um, he doesn't really care for... It's one of those situations where... Um, he loves the Philippians and he loves the Ephesians and he likes the Philippians and he likes the Ephesians. You know, they go to soccer matches together and have a beer together and it's really fun. Not in, he loves the Corinthians, but he doesn't want to hang out with them. He doesn't really like them, you know. And yet, even though he doesn't like them, he just keeps reminding them over and over and over of their salvation status. So he trusts the grace of God and he trusts Jesus with all of that. Then the first major paragraph of the body of the letter, so 3 through 11, and I doubt we're going to get much further than verse 7 in our explication, but, uh, well, actually it's two paragraphs, but I want to read it all together. So he gets into it, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, 
so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but to rely on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from a deadly peril, and he will deliver, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You may also help us by prayer so that we will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So, the greeting was pretty standard, but what Paul does next in these uh, 10 verses, 9 verses, is not so standard. It's a little bit different. After the greeting, there was usually a, a section of thanksgiving in these first century letters, and the thanksgiving was for the recipients of the letters. Now, Paul does this in several of his letters. Colossians. Philippians, I thank my God for you. Here, he doesn't thank God for the Corinthians. He thanks God for God. <laughs> he thanks God for being God in this case. But he's trying to make a really important point here. Okay? And once again, because he does this, we're confronted in the Bible that it's not all about us. That it's about God. So Paul is trying to assist the Corinthians who are selfish beyond any measure that we can even imagine, trying to help the Corinthians see that it's not all about them, that it's really about God. So a couple things we should highlight. He says the father of mercies. It's difficult to read that and not think about how merciful God was over and over and over again to the Israelites when they were in the wilderness post Exodus and they kept messing things up. I mean, how many times did the Israelites turn their back on God? I mean, Moses goes, Moses has gone for like 32 minutes going up Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, and they're already melting down gold and making a calf, you know. And, and they're just constantly whining, and they're telling Moses, after they begged God to get them out of, out of Egypt, out of their slavery in Egypt, they begged him, and God miraculously pulls them out. The Ten Plagues, the Passover, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, and, and then they're in the wilderness, uh, like for a day and a half, and they're like, remember when we were in Egypt, we could have onions and eat cucumbers, and this is terrible out here, you know. And so then God has, you know, the manna, and, and, then, and then he makes dead birds, land, uh, you know, drop from the air to give them some meat. And anyway, they kept messing things up, and yet God continued to be merciful for them. And there were times of punishment and consequences. I mean, you read through the Torah, and you see some uh, very similar to, uh, like, remember um, this last Sunday, Uzzah touches the ark, bam. He's, there's a couple of those in, in um, you know, Exodus and, and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. There are a couple of little problems like that. So there was some punishment and some consequences. But the overarching theme was the Lord extending mercy to the sinners and restoring them. And then Paul says he's the God of all comfort. 
The word for comfort is the same word that's used in the Gospel of John in, in chapters 15 and 16 to describe the Holy Spirit. It's, some, it's, it's a form of the word paraclete. Paraclete means uh, one who comes alongside, one who encourages, one who walks with. And that's how the Holy Spirit is described. And he's saying he's the God of all comfort. He sends the Holy Spirit. It also points to the fact that the only true comfort in this world comes only from God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we may be able to self-medicate. I guess not we, other people outside of this room. Be able to self-medicate with substances or pornography or food or binge-watching. Um, breaking Bad. <laughs> um, or social media ego-casting. But those medications are temporary at best, and their ability to comfort, in their ability to comfort, and at worst, they usually actually bring out worse pain. So I just finished, I didn't know that both books were about this topic. I knew the first book was, but I, I finished a book called Dopamine Nation um, by the psychiatrist uh, Anna Lemke. I, I highly recommend it. You should read it. Uh, the second book I read was The Hacking of the American Mind by a a pediatrician up in the Bay Area who was also writing a book about how uh, we're, we're being afflicted and addicted to dopamine through all of our devices and through all these other things as well. Um, and both of these authors, healthcare uh, MDs, both of them are saying that our drive to continually want more dopamine, dopamine is the is the chemical that's released when we experience something pleasurable. Okay? Our drive to constantly have dopamine cursing through our brain, our neural pathways, eventually leads to destruction. It feels good for a while, then you build up tolerance. You've heard the word tolerance in terms of your brain. Then you build up tolerance and then you end up destroying yourself. So we have to be really careful with these ways that we self-comfort that have nothing to do with the gospel because they're very, ultimately, they feel good, but ultimately they're going to be very destructive uh, to us. And this comfort that is only God's uh, comes to us in all of our afflictions. That word that, uh, that is translated afflictions is also in other places translated as persecuted, oppressed, suffering, and tribulation. So it kind of encompasses all of the sort of the bad stuff that we have to go through just to live life on this earth. I mean, we're all going through that stuff, okay? And literally the word means to be crushed. And he's going to use this word again in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. When we get there, there's going to be this whole thing about cr being crushed. There's even a, an old praise song from the late 1990s about I'm persecuted but not crushed. Remember, anybody remember that song? Jackie, do you remember that one? Yeah, okay, thanks for saying yes, even though you, you don't, okay. Um, but it means to crush you, afflictions, it means to crush you. Do you ever feel like life is crushing you? Anybody? Okay. Work, family, relationships, finances, physical challenges. So, so yeah, we should do um, what we know and what we, we believe we're called to do in a horizontal way. We should do what we can to fix our work situation. Sometimes it means we have to look for something else. 
Sometimes it means that we have to take a chance on saying something to somebody who, who is above us in the hierarchy. Uh, sometimes there's that person that we have to talk to that we really don't want to talk to. Um, sometimes we have to love our wives. Sometimes we have to affirm and respect our husbands. Key word there sometimes, I guess. Um, we should make the first move with our friends. We need to discipline our children because discipline is actually a part of loving them. Maybe we need to change our diet. Maybe we need to work out or, or not. Maybe we need to get our debt and spending under control. All of those things are good and we should do those. But in the end, our hope for lasting eternal comfort and contentment only comes in Christ. A um, couple of reference passages. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses uh, 7 through 11. Let me read that. This is, we'll look at this in a few weeks. Paul writes, But we have this treasure, gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This power belongs to, to comfort us in our afflictions, belongs to God and not in us. We are afflicted, crushed in every way, but not crushed. Isn't that interesting? He says we're crushed, but we're really not crushed. Okay? We're, we are um, perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the, in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So there it is. This, this, these afflictions, the only true comfort comes from Christ and the gospel. And then in terms of contentment, I mean, one of the best contentment passages ever, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, Paul writes... And he wrote this in 61 or 62 AD, so about six or seven years after he wrote Corinthians. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have re re revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show it. So the, the Philippians had been sending Paul some money and support while he's in prison in, in Rome. And then they quit sending it because there was a famine in Philippi and the economy got bad. And no, they didn't have any extra. And then the famine left, and now things are better, and now they're sending him money and support again. So he's saying, I rejoice greatly that now you're, you're, you're supporting me again. But then he says this. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I'm just thanking you. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to tell you to send more. I, I, whether I'm in need or not doesn't matter. Okay? He says, he says, you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I've learned to be content. You know, there's um, spiritual gifts. The Bible talks about spiritual gifts, right? So there's uh, the gift of evangelism, the gift of preaching, the gift of apostleship, the gift of administration, the gift of leadership, the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy. You have all these spiritual gifts. Then there's the fruit of the Spirit, right? So by coming to Christ, we, we are given this fruit if we're willing to pick it and use it. And that fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, um, and self-control. But then there's 
the learned disciplines of the Spirit. (laughs) These are the things that we desperately want and wish that God would just give them to us. And those would be perseverance and contentment and humility and wisdom. Those are the things that aren't just given to us, but rather we have to pursue them. We have to learn them. Paul's saying that about, wouldn't you like to be content? By the way, the Greek word for content, eudaimonia, um, means happy in your situation. Everybody, so isn't that interesting? If we just substitute the word content, use the word happy, now we're, now we're going to gain the culture because the culture, all they want to do is be happy, right? What they don't understand is that happiness really means contentment. So a little trickaroo for the, for the culture, you know. But, but here's the thing. It's a learned uh, attitude. It's a learned characteristic. It's a learned experience. And here's the other thing you need to know. Paul's trying to teach us about contentment, but it is not an anti-ambition message. You need to remember that too. He's not saying don't be ambitious. He's not saying uh, be complacent. I don't know that I could search history and find a more ambitious person than Paul. He was very ambitious. He was certainly not complacent, and yet he had learned how to be content. He had learned how at the end of the day, he was going to be able to say, I did everything I was called to do. I did everything I was supposed to do. I, I did what I could. But I'm done now for the day. I'm okay with who I am. I'm okay with where I am. I'm okay with who I'm with. And I'm okay with what I'm doing. I'm content. In any and any, every situation that I'm in, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I have abundance or I have absolutely nothing and I'm sleeping in the road, I'm content with where I am. And tomorrow's another day, and I know tomorrow I'm called to do more. But I'm okay right now. So he writes... Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, facing abundance and need. I can do all things through him, Christ, who strengthens me. He says, all your happiness, all your contentment, everything that you've been desiring to be uh, fulfilled with is in the gospel. It's in Christ. Christ crucified and resurrected. So now, let me just reread 3 through 7, and we'll try to get through um, those five verses before we move on to uh, next week's uh, stuff. So I just want to reread it so we hear it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our crushings, our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we w- with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We're going to pass that on. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it is also for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope is that you are, our hope for you is unshaken For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comforts. So this is quite a significant paragraph for a number of reasons. I'll try to unpack them all. Um, I will tell you, I've done a number of um, weddings. Yes, weddings. I don't read this at weddings. I've done a number of funerals. (laughs) 
the number of memorial services, I can't remember a single memorial service where I didn't read this passage. Trying to help people understand that I understand they're going through this affliction of losing a loved one, but it's God who's going to be able to comfort them through the sufferings of Christ. The affliction, this affliction, this suffering, the challenges, the persecution, uh, for whatever we believe, it is something that's all, that all Christians go through. So this passage, this paragraph, also applies to every single Christian throughout history, including us today. So this paragraph, even though it's written to the Corinthians, is exceptionally important general teaching. But in their case, what is the specific suffering that Paul might be referring to? Can we know that? Actually, we can know what he's talking about in that specific situation in Corinth because of that particular word that Paul uses for affliction. The Corinthian Christians, because they're in Corinth, which is highly pagan, were suffering persecution at the hands of the people in the cities, in the city and the people in the temples. So people who were going to church and they were a part of the Christian faith community in Corinth were now losing their jobs, they were being excluded from their community, and their communal standing and status were being impugned. Very difficult stuff. Now, this is, in varying degrees, the universal Christian experience. It is. We, we don't feel it quite as much in the United States as, as, it, as it happens in other places where people are being killed for their faith because it still happens even today. At any rate, this paragraph is also, he's saying, we've been afflicted. Paul is saying, we've been afflicted. We have suffered. And therefore, we know how to comfort you. You see that? Because we understand where our comfort comes in our afflictions, in our suffering, in our persecution, and in our oppression. Because we know that, and we've experienced it, just like you have, we can pass that on to you. We have credibility to be able to talk to you about this. And you should listen to us. So I'll end with this tonight. Um, there's a scholar named David Augsburger. I don't know if he's still alive. Tremendous scholar. Uh, if, James, have you ever heard of Augsburger? So he, double PhD in psychology and theology. At one time he was the um, president of the School of Theology at Fuller Seminary, which is a seminary I went to. Fuller has three different schools, graduate schools. They have a school of psychology, school of theology, and a school of um, missions. All graduate degrees. Um, and he was at one time the president of the School of Theology. I got to take one class with him during my graduate program. It was magnificent. He's written 25 books, mostly about counseling and, and things like that, so mostly from his psychology side. Um, but he takes this passage and he talks about the difference between, you've probably heard of two of these words, maybe not the third. So he talks about the difference between sympathy empathy and interpathy. Has anybody heard the word interpathy? Okay, so, so here, here's how we might describe sympathy. Sympathy is the lowest level of sorrow that you can feel for somebody else going through a bad time. It's the lowest level. You have sympathy for them. That's too bad. So if you're a Seinfeld fan, which I know there's at least a half of one of you in here. If you're a Seinfeld fan, it's like when, when Jerry and Elaine and Kramer are sitting at Monk's Cafe having coffee and somebody walks by and they trip and fall down and Jerry says, 
That's a shame. So that's sympathy. <laughs> okay. So empathy is you see somebody in their suffering, their affliction, their challenge or whatever, and you've never been through what they're going through, but you're really trying hard to understand what it's like to be them in that moment. You're trying to put yourself in their, in their shoes. You're, try, you're, you're, you're really trying to figure that out. So in communication, we teach that you should listen with empathy. In other words, listen to the other person from their perspective. It's one of the most important parts of conflict resolution is having empathy. Uh, so empathy is a big part of listening. It's a big part of conflict resolution, being able to put yourself in the other person's place, even though you don't agree with them and maybe you've never experienced it before. So empathy, so empathy is, a, is a notch higher than sympathy. It's better than sympathy. Uh, Interpathy takes it up even to a higher notch. Interpathy is you have been through exactly what that person has gone through, which gives you a level of credibility to be able to speak into somebody else's life that somebody who hasn't been through it just doesn't have. So I'm, I'm I'm a pastor. I'm a professional religious person. I have two advanced degrees People should come to me when they're in, when they're addicted and suffering. You know, they should come. And people do, okay. But here's the deal: um, it's amazing to me how often um, family members will bring a family member, family members will bring a family member to me or to Tyler or Tyler or Trey, and they'll say they're addicted to meth or they're addicted to cocaine. And they're convinced that if they could just get them in front of a a professional religious person, that they'd be able to fix them, okay? And what all the research knows about addiction is that really an addict, first of all, has to want to recover. You can't can't do anything with somebody who's like, I kind of like taking meth, okay? And and I've had conversations like that with people. At some point when they... When the grandparents or the parents bring in the kid, the 25-year-old kid who's on meth, at some point during the conversation, I'll look at them and I'll say, so let me just ask you a question. Do you you want to stop taking meth? I can't tell you how many times they'll look at me and then they'll kind of look away, look at the ground, and then they'll look back at me and they'll go, not really. And then I have to tell the parents or the grandparents, there's not a lot we can do here. So the first thing is they got to want to recover. But then research shows very clearly that the addict, in order to, re- to start on the road to recovery, the addict really wants to talk to somebody who has been an addict and who is uh, successful at be- in their recovery. I, I don't know what they're going through, and I can sit there and empathize, but I don't know how useful that is even in that situation. That, that's why most recovery places end up hiring people who have been through their program. Right? Because they know that those people are the ones that can really talk to the addict who's trying to recover. So this idea of interpathy is what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, look, you're suffering. You're being crushed. Look at us. We've been crushed. How about when, when Paul was at um, was it Iconium where, where they chased him out of the city and, and threw him down in a, in, a, in, a, uh, in a trench and threw stones on him and thought he was dead. They stoned him, thought he was dead, left him for dead. He was literally physically crushed. He says, look, I've been through it. And here's where I find my comfort. I find my comfort in the sufferings of Christ. 
who has gone before me. That's inner path. So Paul's teaching that here. Okay, so, and let me just close that little part by saying this. Um, and this is where we'll start next week. Interpathy is one of the reasons why community is so important. Why the whole body of the church is so important. Because if you're just hanging out with one or two people, I don't need to go to church. I, I get together with my friend and we talk about Jesus. That's, that's my church. Okay, That's not a body though. When you have an entire community, you're going to find somebody in this community who's been through what you're going through and can be a friend in a way that nobody else can be. That's the importance of community in the midst of this. And Paul teaches that, of course, in 1 Corinthians as well. That's where we'll pick up, uh, not on the 21st, but on the 28th. Let me pray, and we'll see you Sunday morning. Um, By the way, no, that's not this Sunday. We're talking about Mephibosheth this Sunday. Next Sunday that we get David and Bathsheba. I don't know why I'm so excited about it. It's kind of sick, isn't it? Uh, let me pray. You can pray for me and my attitude as well. Um, Lord God, thank you for your word and its truth, and thank you that we can learn things from it and apply it today, um, that it is so insightful to our human condition today. So give us the courage to study it, to know it, to, to lean into it, to seek it, and to know you. And, and God, just fill us with your Holy Spirit and fill us with your wisdom. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.